We've been looking at this. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So the past couple of weeks, we've had this picture of Jesus. He told all these parables. Then he got in a boat intentionally, went to the other side of the lake, huge storm. He calms it. They land in a graveyard. There's a crazy man who comes running at them. Jesus deals with this guy who's demon-possessed. We looked at that last week. We saw that as a picture of what kind of Satan's job description and Jesus' job description. Satan is trying to eradicate the image of God in this man's life. He wants to do the same thing in our life as much as he can. He wants to wreck our lives. And Jesus destroys his work. He undoes everything that the enemy has done in this man's life. So then they get back in the boat and they cross back over. So everything we've looked at over the past couple of weeks was one night. It was you know, 12, 14, 15 hours, this whole thing. Now they come back. It's sometime the next day. And there's a crowd gathering around Jesus. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus, that's how I'm going to say it, um, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And there was a woman, excuse me, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. So if you put yourself, you're a a member of the crowd. You've seen, you know, here Jesus is coming back. Maybe you've heard him talk. Maybe you've seen him work some miracles. But for whatever reason, he's drawn your interest and you're a part of this crowd. You see two different approaches to him. Again, just make yourself an observer. The first is there, there's this guy that you know. His name is Jairus. You can maybe think of him like an elder in a church. He was chosen by his local synagogue, which meant people thought he was upright, he was devout, he was uh, responsible. They've chosen him to, to lead their synagogue. So you've got this guy, Jairus, pretty prominent, maybe not in terms of, ec- maybe not economically, but socially religiously, spiritually, he's a prominent man. Everybody knows who he is. He fights through this crowd, and he falls at Jesus' feet. And in a society where honor is the top value, to fall at the feet of another man's a pretty, that's a humbling thing. Just for, for you, have you ever fallen at the feet of, other than when you kneeled down to propose to your now wife, have you ever kneeled at anybody's feet? And if you have, have you ever begged them to help you? So here's Jairus, a very well-known, prominent man who is embarrassing himself in front of Jesus. Falls down at his feet, literally begging him to come heal his daughter. We know from Luke, this is his only daughter. She's 12 years old, which means she's getting close to the marrying age. That's weird for us to get, but that's where she would have been. She would have been, um, most likely they already would have had a guy and they would have had some arrangements made. This would have been her year of being betrothed and all the excitement that goes if those of you who are married think of your engagement time and all of the hopes and the dreams and all of that stuff is going on he comes up to Jesus and says she is dying not she's sick she is dying so you're in the crowd and you see one of your guys this elder in your church good man devout man upright man who comes to him with this request what's sadder than a little girl on a deathbed come and help her Again, this man who you respect laying in a pool on the ground at Jesus' feet, begging him. So, of course, Jesus says, absolutely. Y'all all all know where Jairus' house is, so everybody starts walking that way to see 
what Jesus is going to do. And then there's this lady who you also know. She's from your town. She doesn't have a name, but you know who she is. Sneaks up behind Jesus and grabs his robe. And you're thinking, what is she doing? She's been bleeding for 12 years. If you want to find out the background, you can read Leviticus 15. To me, it's the most disgusting chapter in the whole Bible, but go ahead. You can flip there now if I've piqued your interest. According to that chapter, everything she lays on is unclean. Everything she sits on is unclean. Anyone who lays on something she's laid on becomes unclean. Anyone who sits on something she sits on becomes unclean. And anyone she touches becomes unclean. I don't know if this was the case in her town, but there were towns in this area where if you were unclean, when you walked down the street, you had to yell, unclean, so everybody else would get out of the way. Uncleanness was contagious. Anything you touched, anything she touched, would become unclean as well. So for 12 years, she was avoided. People didn't pay attention to her, and if they happened to see her, they just crossed the street to the other side. Because you didn't want to risk being contaminated. If she touched you, you had to go wash your clothes, which is more difficult then than now. You can't just throw them in the washing machine. And you were unclean until sunset that day. So it was, it was inconvenient to be around her because you didn't know when her cooties were going to jump off. And then you had to go through. the. And to add to that, there's this the end of Leviticus 15 when it says how you deal with people who have these problems. She has to be symptom-free for seven days, for a week. So no bleeding for a week. And then on the eighth day, she's supposed to make an offering of atonement. And that idea of atonement kind of carries with it this feeling of, well, she sinned, right? We atone for sins. It's not just a medical condition. There was a school of thought during this time that if you were suffering chronically, God was judging you for some sins you have committed. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't see a whole lot of sympathy for unclean people. There's kind of this sense that they're getting what they deserve. They did. So, we might not know what they did, but she did something, and God is judging her for what she's done. She's not allowed in the temple. Nobody else can touch her, and it's her fault. So no sympathy for this woman who's ostracized. She's not married. No way she's married. The chances of her still living at home are pretty slim, again, because everything she touches is unclean. So who knows how she manages day to day. Pretty ugly existence. But you know this lady. You don't feel sorry for her because you're figuring she's getting what she deserves from God. She worms her way through this crowd. Again, everybody she touches, she's contaminating. And then she grabs on to Jesus's robe. We see Jairus who falls at his feet, this posture of humility, maybe even faith. Just touch my daughter and she'll be healed. This woman sneaks up from behind and grabs his robe. It's superstitious. There's power flowing through, and I just got to grab onto it, and I'll get some for me. Doesn't seem to have any desire to interact with him. Doesn't seem to have any notion that he might have things that he's doing. She just interrupts where he's going. If you're in the crowd, that's, that's what you're thinking. Jairus is the right guy, and he's done things the right way. And this other, she's the wrong woman who's done things the wrong way. And then we see Jesus' response. Immediately, so she says, if I, if I touch him, I'll be healed. And it says, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who, 
and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you as disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Kind of the picture there to me is they're trying to get him to keep moving. We got a guy here, it's a prominent family, he's got a little girl dying, just keep walking. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So again, if you're in the crowd, Jesus stops. Now he's on a pretty urgent mission here. The girl is dying. Death is a pretty permanent situation. He's moving in this direction and he stops. And he says, who touched me? And what you're thinking is, well, along with the disciples, there's lots of people touching you, but for whatever reason, he continues on that track. And then the woman comes out and falls at his feet and she's shaking in fear. And what you're thinking is he's either going to ignore her and keep walking like everybody else or he's going to rebuke her. And that's what she thinks. That's why she's trembling in fear. Again, when she grabbed onto Jesus, she contaminated him. So by law, he's got to go wash his clothes and he's unclean until evening. So how in the world is he supposed to go, according to Jairus, and lay your hands on my daughter so she'll be healed? He can't do it. She's knocked him out of the game. In her desperation to get to him, she's prevented him from doing the mission that he was intending to do. If you're in the crowd, you're thinking, we've got a girl who's about to die. You've been bleeding for 12 years. What's another few hours? Why can't you just wait your turn? She jumped the line. He was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And what you're thinking, if you're in the crowd, is he's about to set her straight. And she thinks she's about to be set straight. That's why she's trembling in fear before him. But look at his response. It's so different. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She wanted to stop bleeding. Jesus wanted for her to start living so much more than what she approached him for. She snuck up from behind him just hoping to kind of get a, a jolt of power. He pulls her front and center, which for her initially is incredibly frightening because of what that had meant for her in the past. Every time she was pointed out, it was to say, avoid that woman. He calls her daughter. Who knows when the last time she heard something like that was. This woman who had been avoided for 12 years Jesus stops the whole parade, pulls her up, and commends her. Your faith has healed you. Not my power has healed you. It has, but not, that's not what he points out. Your faith. Other people had touched him, and there's no record of them being healed. Your faith has healed you. What does that mean for a woman who for 12 years, everybody in the town thinks God is against her? Everyone in the town thinks God is judging her, punishing her, disciplining her, whatever, for something that she's done. We don't know what she's done, but she's done something to deserve this. What is it when Jesus says, your faith has healed you? How does that lift her up? A woman who's been stepped around all of her life to know that Jesus stops the parade to go to the house of Jairus' daughter for her, to talk to her, to restore her publicly. He says to her, be freed from your suffering. Another translation of that says, be whole from your plague. I love that, be whole. She just wanted to stop bleeding. He wanted her to stop, to start living, to be whole. We've talked before, there's this Hebrew word, shalom, which we translate peace, and it means so much more than the absence of conflict. It's the 
being in right relationship with God and with other people. It's goodwill. It's tranquility. It's, it's, just, it's a very full word. And that's what Jesus is saying to her here. This isn't just about your physical condition. In every way, I want you to go forward as a whole woman. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? So now you, imagine you're him. Who knows how long? You know, it takes us 15 seconds to read that. Who knows how long that interaction actually went on? It says, what does it say that she said? She told him the whole truth. Y'all been around folks like that before. <laughs> Twelve years of suffering. That's a whole lot of whining that she's got. Who knows how long? And you're Jairus. Your daughter's on her deathbed. You're tapping your foot and you're doing this. And you probably have smoke coming out. You're, you were first, right? You got to him first. He said yes to you first. Who is this woman to come and interrupt everything? And again, she's been bleeding for 12 years. Yes, we can feel sorry for her. She's lived with it for a long time. Is it going to kill her to live with it for a few more hours? No, obviously not. On the other hand, your only daughter is about to die. So imagine when these guys come up to you and say, don't bother him anymore, she's already dead. I don't know if you're angry, frustrated, mad. Who, all of those emotions going on inside of you. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they all laughed at him. Um, in the culture, it was common. Everybody would have had um, professional mourners. They would have already gotten word to them and brought them over, and they're kind of doing their thing. That's why they can go from mourning to laughing so quick. They probably didn't even know the girl. It was, just, it was their job to mourn. That's weird for us, but it was cultural for them. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. As they were complete, at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So now you're Jairus. Jesus says, listen, don't, don't listen to those guys. Let's just... Get home. You don't be afraid. So who knows what your attitude is on the way home. You get there. He raises your little girl from the dead. At some point, after the euphoria and relief and all of these different emotions, maybe you sit back and you try to process. Your job, remember, is you're a ruler, a leader in a synagogue. You're responsible for helping run the service within your community. You're most likely looked up to as a spiritual Authority Again, think about a church elder and kind of that position. What Jairus went to Jesus with was, heal my daughter. What Jesus gave to Jairus was a whole different picture of this God who he was representing. God doesn't play favorites. Jairus knows that now. Just because someone is unclean doesn't mean they're unloved. The whole parade stopped with this woman who had no business getting in the way. Jesus allowed his daughter, Jairus' daughter, the good guy, the right guy's daughter, to die so he could take care of this ostracized woman. 
I don't know that Jairus ever saw an unclean person again. I wonder if part of his job was to kind of help keep her away. I wonder what his response was moving forward with folks who were unclean. He realized that God's priorities were different. Ceremonial uncleanness, it is a big deal in the Old Testament. It was a big deal. But for Jesus, personal wholeness trumps ceremonial uncleanliness every time. Jairus got that now. I think he got a glimpse into God's heart that he didn't have before. So that's the story. I want to pull back from that for a second. And I want you to look at this in terms, each of these guys, in terms of two approaches, two ways, two templates for approaching God. And I think most of us fall into one of two categories. Some of us see ourselves kind of in the right guy category. Some of us see ourselves in the wrong woman category. It has nothing to do with gender. It's just our view of how we approach God. If I want God to be active in my life, I either approach him as the right guy or as the wrong woman. I'll talk a little bit about that. And I want you to put yourself in one of the two camps. The right guy. This is me, so I can speak to it pretty confidently. You're a good guy. You're pretty uh, upstanding. You've never messed up a whole lot. You're the guy that says the family prayer at Thanksgiving dinner when everybody gets together. That's your role. Everybody knows you as the Christian person. And in general, and, and it's not, not it's, it's true. It's true. It's not fake. You're not putting on a mask. You're just a good person. But when it comes time to relate to God, particularly when you need him active in your life, you might do something like this. There's a, there's a date on the calendar that you have circled. You've got an interview. You need to close a sale. Um, there's a surgery in your family. There's a conversation that needs to be had. There's some Something out here, and you know it would certainly be nice if God would be active. So I've got a little on-ramp here. I've got a runway. And what I'm going to do from now until this date on my calendar is I'm going to up my righteousness quotient. I'm going to watch a little less reality TV, read the Bible a little more, help a few more old ladies cross the street. I'm going to pray a little more. I might give a little more. I'm not going to miss church. All these kind of things. That are this righteous, and it's fine. All those things are good. But that I'm doing all of these righteous behaviors. This is not conscious in my mind. But somewhere down here, I know I, I'm going to have to call in a favor on in two or three weeks with God. I'm going to need him to come through. So what I'm doing is I'm building up my account with my righteous behavior. And so when it comes time to ask him to get involved, and again, not consciously, but what I'm thinking is I've done a lot for you over the last two, three, four weeks. The bigger the thing, the longer the runway for me. I've put in my time. I've done all of this stuff. You kind of never say it, but in my mind is you owe me one on this. I've done some stuff. I've, I've earned your activity in my life. I don't think, you know, a 30 minutes of prayer a day somehow equals one answered prayer the next week. It's not that mechanical in my mind. But somewhere kind of subconsciously, my assumption is God is active in my life based on my resume, based on my accomplishments. And there's actually some truth there. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So what I'm doing is I'm... I'm, I'm Humility in terms of recognizing my need for God or my dependence upon him and doing all these things, that's what I'm showing. See, I need you, I need you, I need you. And there's, there's some truth behind what I'm doing. 
It's just not fully there. There's this weird passage in Luke 17. Jesus says this, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The answer is no. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. The context there is he's talking about forgiveness, and he's saying, the disciples are saying, how many times should we forgive? And he says, you've got to forgive every time somebody comes to you. But when you do, don't, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't think you've done some great heroic thing by forgiving people. That's your job as a Christian. For people like me, who tend to relate to God almost employer-employee, I need to hear that. I need to recognize all of these things that are good and right that I do. I'm not, it's not putting God in my debt. His grace is not an allowance that I earn. It's a gift that he gives to me. And I limit him when I base his activity in my life on my resume. If, if, if the only things I'm comfortable asking him to do are based on the amount of good that I've done, how much have I left on the table? I've earned a nickel and left millions on the table. My righteousness is nothing to him. Some of you, that's not you at all. You're the wrong woman. Feel inadequate, shame, guilt. I see myself as a first-round draft pick. You're just happy you're on the bus. You'll take anything that he gives you. You don't feel like you deserve anything from God, and so you don't ask him to get involved. You're this woman who spent every dime she had in 12 years trying to get cured. You look everywhere else because you figure, well, if I go to God, he's not going to hear me anyway because fill in the blank. You don't like you that much, so you figure he doesn't like you that much either. Anything he gives you, it's begrudgingly given. There's a story, we'll look at this in a couple weeks when we get to Mark 7 that maybe fits you. Jesus left the place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. This is a tough thing Jesus says here. First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. We'll get into that a little more, what Jesus means in a few weeks when we get there. But for us, for now, some of you, the wrong woman template, you see yourself as a dog on the ground not as a child sitting at a table. Anything you get from the Lord, it's a crumb, it's a scrap. Maybe accidentally got brushed off. That's just wrong. You're right. You can't do anything to earn or deserve or merit His grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. It's the good things God gives us that we don't earn. You get that. The thing for us even though we know that here, we still see ourselves, some of you, as a dog on the ground waiting for a scrap. Yes, you can't earn his grace. No, that doesn't mean he doesn't want to give it to you. For me, I say, give me what I earn. For you, you say, I don't deserve anything. So you don't expect anything. 
You don't ask him for anything unless it's a last-ditch, literally, Hail Mary out of desperation because nothing else is working. And when you ask, it's half-hearted. You figure he's not going to do anything anyway. Why should he answer you? You're just a dog on the ground. Both of us have missed it. Neither one of us understands the grace of God. Both of us are relating to him from our perspective. God's activity in my life is based on my behavior. I just think my behavior is good. And so he's going to relate to me based on that. You know your behavior is terrible. So you figure he's going to relate to you based on that. Neither one of us gets grace. Neither one of us understands that he relates to us based on his heart, not our behavior. And so both of us limit what he does in our lives. I'll only ask him stuff based on how much money is in my righteous account. You won't ask him for anything because you know there's none in yours. And for both of us, he's sitting on the sidelines in our lives, waiting to be included. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Your paycheck is not grace. You earned it, theoretically. You earned it. You did the work, and that's what they give you. That's not a, it's not a gift. But the gift, the free gift, the Greek word is charisma, the grace gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a contrast there. Death is what we deserve. It's the payment for sin. Life is what we receive in Christ as a gift from God. We need to get that in our own hearts and minds. 1 John 3, 1 says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. If you're like me, if you're a right guy person, you need Romans 6.23 etched in your brain. What I deserve, what I've earned is death. What I'm given is life. If you're a wrong woman type person, never goes to God with anything, and when you do, you figure he's not going to answer anyway. You see yourself as second class. You're, in the, you're outside. He hadn't invited you into the table. 1 John 3.1, you need to etch that on your mind lavished on us. Think about that. He doesn't have to give us anything. He chooses to give us everything. Lavishes his grace on us. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says that. He's lavished his grace upon us. Let's pray. This is what I want you to do. In your mind, I want you to figure out which one of those two ditches you fall in. If you happen to be some super awesome Christian then maybe you don't fall in any ditch. And you can preach next Sunday. And now I want you to repent for whichever ditch you tend to fall in. It might not be all the time for you. You might have things pretty well nailed down. There are just certain times where you tend to revert back, which is, that's great. And repentance, it sounds something like this. God, I confess that I tend to relate to you based on, in my case, I would say based on my own accomplishments, based on my resume, based on my righteousness, my spirituality. I'm a good guy. I see myself as the right guy. And when it comes time for you to be active in my life, I pull out the ledger sheet to see how much I've done and what's reasonable to ask. I don't understand 
grace in a lot of ways. I understand wages, payment, fair, deserve. That's what I understand. I confess that I limit your activity in my life because I'll only relate to you based on the good stuff that I've done, not based on the love that you have for me, which far surpasses any righteous behavior. And so I ask that you now would help me understand how wide and high and long and deep is the love that you have for me. This love that motivates you as a good father to delight in giving good gifts to me. If you're on the other side, if you're the wrong woman kind of person, similar. I confess, God, that I relate to you based on my perception of who I am and what I deserve. And I don't think I deserve anything but crumbs, and so that's all I expect. I've limited you because you're my last resort, not my first option. Huge areas of my life, I don't even invite you to get involved in because I figure you don't want to anyway. Or I don't deserve to have your blessings in these areas. And I repent of that. And God, I ask that you would help me to know how wide and long and high and deep is your love for me. That I would know that you're motivated, not based on what I've done, but based on who you are. That I would know this good father who delights in giving good gifts to me. God, for all of us, we don't want to leave anything on the table. We don't want to artificially limit what you do in our lives because we're relating to you from a wrong perspective. Some of us can relate with Jairus. Some of us relate with this bleeding woman. But they were both, they both missed it on some level. And we don't want to do that. God, help each of us to know the freedom of being your children and coming to you confidently because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. That's what we're going to do. You guys can stand up. We're going to have minutes.